The Relationship Alive podcast is my offering to you to help you have the most amazing relationship possible. So if you're finding the show to be helpful, please consider a donation to help support the show and ensure that we can continue. To choose something that feels right for you, you can visit neilsatin.com slash support, or you can text the word support to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And this week, I would like to thank Lydia, Karina, Eleni, Timothy, Bart, Patty, Kevin, Bruce, and Ruthanna. Thank you all so much for your generous and ongoing support of the Relationship Alive podcast. Now, one of the hallmarks of a healthy relationship is how well you and your partner can communicate. So if you haven't yet picked up my free guide on my top three relationship communication secrets, now's the time. Just visit neilsatin.com slash relate or text the word relate to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. These three simple things can help turn any conversation, even about the most challenging things, into a connecting conversation. So check it out. And speaking of connecting, if you're looking to connect with other people who listen to the Relationship Alive podcast and who are there to support each other in having amazing, thriving relationships, then come join the Relationship Alive community on Facebook. And I think that's it. So let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. I always start the show with a question. And there's a question that's been coming up a lot recently in terms of the kind of feedback that I've been getting from you, both through email and through the Relationship Alive community on Facebook. And that is, how do I know the balance between what I can actually do in a relationship and when it's just not going to happen with the person that I'm with? How do I know whether I've really done all that I can do relationally? How do I know that I've truly brought my best to relationship so that if things really aren't working out, then I can safely say it wasn't me or at least to the best of my ability? And I think this is a great question to ask if you're in a troubled relationship. And at the same time, if you're in a great relationship, there's always this question too of how do I bring my best to what we're doing? How do we be in, uh, in a state of growth and discovery and curiosity? And, and also how do we deal with the things that maybe come up for us over and over again? Is that a sign that there's something wrong or should I be fixing that? And it's a great process of inquiry to be in. And so to cover the breadth of these questions, I wanted to have on the show a special guest who just came out with a book this past year called Loving Bravely, 20 Lessons of Self-Discovery to Help You Get the Love You Want. 
Her name is Dr. Alexandra Solomon, and she's a professor at Northwestern University who has gained a certain amount of notoriety for teaching a, uh, I think, a marriage and intimacy 101 class, which is something that we've talked about a lot here on the show, that that special relationship education that we often don't get in the haphazard way that we learn about relationship in our culture or in our families. So, Alexandra Solomon is here with us today to discuss her book, Loving Bravely, and to get at the heart of how we, um, how we can take this journey, uh, the journey that really begins within us, but that interfaces with our partners, our family, our friends, um, to make sure that we are bringing our best to relationship. Uh, we're, we will have a detailed show guide and transcript for this episode. If you want to download that, you can visit neilsatin.com slash bravely, as in loving bravely. Uh, or you can text the word passion to the number 33444, follow the instructions, and I will send you a link to this show's transcript and guide, as well as all of our other show guides and transcripts. So I think that's it. Let's get started. Alexandra Solomon, thank you so much for being here with us today on Relationship Alive. Thank you for having me on. I'm happy to be here. Let's start with, I'm curious about this course that you teach. How did that, how did that even come up for you? The idea of teaching this class in college about how to do relationship well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this course has certainly been just a, a huge, meaningful uh, experience in my life year after year. So the course, w- when we teach the course this spring, it will be our 18th time teaching it. So the first years that it was taught, I was a graduate student studying at Northwestern University. And two of my mentors, uh, Bill Pinsoff and Art Nielsen, were, you know, longtime couples therapists um, who sat hour after hour, week after week in their offices with couple after couple watching sort of these dances of despair, of disconnection, of suffering, and um, started to ask the question, like, what if, what if we started to really value um, talking to people about love early in their lives, you know, before they've partnered um, and before they've kind of gotten... (laughs) you know, gotten tossed around in the sea of love and could it make a difference? And, and um, this was happening, you know, as the field of relationship science was really starting to take off and be able to stand on its own two legs as a legitimate field of study. So uh, I think for years, you know, we sort of thought of love and um, as sort of this, I don't know, woo woo thing, you know, and so to teach love was sort of saying like, what are you talking about? Um, but the science is, you know, the science is certainly clear. The quality of our relationships, especially our rela- romantic relationships, is a really big piece of the pie in terms of our overall quality of our lives. So that was the place from which the course was born, was a desire to touch people, touch young people's lives and journeys early on, you know, when they're sort of sexually mature, but exploring. And um, my gosh, when I think about college, you know, I spent hour after hour on the floor of in the dorm, you know, talking about love and (laughs) sex with my friends. So this class just, I think it really meets, meets young adults where they are. 
And does that mean that if you're someone like me who's, you know, in his 40s that that I, I've I'm not impressionable enough anymore and, and these lessons won't apply? not by a long shot right not by a long shot that's been if there's been one thing i've heard over the years and this course has um has received as you might expect a you know great amount of media attention it's been featured on five continents and just uh you know there's a lot of curiosity about what the heck are you doing talking to college students about how to do love and so the one thing i've heard over and over again is like dang i wish i had that when i was in college I think that's there's a real longing for why aren't we talking about this? Like, why didn't somebody talk to me about some setting down some basic principles, some basic foundation? So it's never too late, though. Never, ever too late. Yeah. Well, I was being a little facetious because <laughs> I do have a whole podcast whole, about this right. thing. But <laughs> That's right. It's the, only the entirety of your life. <laughs> that's right. Yes. We love the lifelong learning, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And um, and I love how your book encourages it, it encourages a process that allows people to get into that learning mindset and to to always be curious. And I think that is a is one of the big challenges because when we struggle um, with our partners and find you know you have that moment where you get triggered and it, your your prefrontal cortex turns off, remembering that you can find your way back to curiosity even in a moment like that is a real challenge for people. It's yeah. I mean that that's the practice, isn't it? Like holding on to. Um, that framework that whatever is happening right now in the space between my partner and I has got the power to really show me more about me, reveal me to me, offer me tremendous healing. That's a hard place to hold. And I don't know if any of us hold it 24-7, but at least we can commit ourselves to uh, to trying to remember, you know, to to making our forgetfulness as short as possible and coming back to that center of, okay, what's going on in me right now? Yeah, and one of the, the themes that you come back to over and over again in Loving Brave, Bravely is this process of, I think you call it name, connect, and choose. So perhaps we could dive into what that means right now. And, and um, so if you're listening and you're hearing me say name, connect, choose, you'll have a sense of what we're talking about because I think it pulls you from these moments of being dislocated from yourself and your curiosity and the, the kinds of things that help you find solutions or that even help you thrive and grow. Um, it brings you back really, really well and succinctly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, I, I think that 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 has that was a helpful tool for me and my writing of the book. And it's the name connect choose process is just the it's just a process of awareness. It's a pro, it's a way of kind of um, thinking about what what bringing awareness looks like. And so sometimes it happens at the really macro level, like the really big picture level. And where the naming is, I name my father's alcoholism. I name that. And for many of us, you know, our healing journey begins by just calling a thing what it is, looking a thing dead in the eyes and calling it what it is. So for so sometimes 
the naming is a big picture name. Like I name that I am a survivor of abuse. I name that my, that my father struggled with alcoholism. Then the connect um, is just noticing the feelings that are attached to that, to that truth. And um, rather than judging the feelings or thinking about what you think the feelings should be, just bearing witness to the feelings. So, so that the, the connect is really um, a permission to just feel what you feel um, because it's through that process of naming something, allowing ourselves to feel what we feel that creates enough of a enough consciousness, enough awareness that then multiple paths open forward that allow us to choose something different. Um, and sometimes like when we're talking about like a big picture thing, we may choose then to not partner with somebody who is in the throes of their addiction the way that we have before, right? When we're unconscious, um, when we haven't named the impact of a, a parent's addiction, for example, we will bring to us in an unconscious way, we'll bring to us somebody with a similar wound, right? Because that little child in us wants so desperately to fix, to redo, to master something that in childhood was unfixable, out of our control. Hmm. So through the process of calling, calling the chapters of our life story what they are and letting ourselves feel what we feel, we bring ourselves to a place of greater awareness and ability to say, I see that that person is suffering. I see it. I feel the pull, but I'm not going to go towards it. I don't need to. I don't need to, you know, fix the world. I can come back to my center. Um, so that's kind of that big picture naming of bringing our awareness to our life story. Babe, look. What is it? I got the Fab Fit Fun Box in the mail. It finally came? Yeah. Awesome. And look at it. It's so pretty. That is Kind of pretty, isn't it? Yeah, it's so colorful. I love it. Let's see what's inside. Okay, cool. What'd you get? What's this? Ooh, shiny. That's makeup of some sort. It is. It's. It looks like it's all eyeshadow. I needed some new eyeshadow. Cool. And there's eyeliner. What no. kind of eyeliner is that? It's sex kitten eyeliner from Tarte. Meow. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, there's some organic sunscreen. Wow. I know. There's I some really good stuff it. in there. I know, right? What's that thing? This thing? Yeah. I don't know. Let's open it up. It's buzzing. Oh. It's vibrating. Is it a vibrator? You think they sent you a vibrator? <laughs> no, wait look. a minute. What does it say? It's the Foreo Luna Bofo. Now, it looks like this is some crazy new technology for facial cleansing. Whoa. It hooks up to your Bluetooth, and then there's a whole app that tells you all about your skin's oil and all that. That's wow. cool. I'm curious to find out about my skin's oil. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, really and cool. look at this beautiful beach towel. It's huge. Whoa. That is so pretty. I love it. Well, if you're wondering what we're going on and on about, we just got our summer box. I say our, but it's really Chloe's <laughs> from FabFitFun. And FabFitFun 
offers a seasonal subscription box with full-size products that are for beauty, lifestyle, fitness, fashion. The boxes themselves retail for $49.99 each, but they come with more than $200 worth of stuff. In fact, I think this one was over $300 this season. Which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. We, they are offering a special for you for trying FabFitFun. If you want to get $10 off your first box, you can visit FabFitFun.com and use the coupon code ALIVE. And that'll get you a box for $39.99 and get amazing stuff with it. Seriously, that's like less than just the sunscreen costs. It's almost less than every single one of these things in the box costs on their own. Yeah. And I'm I'm really impressed with how useful all of this stuff is. Yeah. Plus they packaged it in a way that it looks like you know, everything in here is, is recyclable. So, yeah. Super pretty. The box is pretty. <laughs> I think I might want to use that for something. I know. We might have to use it for wrapping a birthday present. You make that sound so enticing. Do I? Yes. Ooh. Whose birthday? Mine. <laughs> <laughs> so visit fabfitfun.com. Use the coupon code ALIVE for $10 off your first box. And uh, let us know what you get. I'm curious. And thank you, FabFitFun, for sponsoring Relationship Alive. Yes. And thank you, FabFitFun, for the beautiful box we just received. Yes. And now back to the show. Yeah. And you mentioned that that uh, process of even listing out the chapters. And that was one aspect in your book that you revisit over and over again that I really appreciated as a way of helping you both see the the themes and the patterns that happen in your life and in your choices, as well as to get a certain degree of of um, objectivity with those things. Mm -hmm. So um, maybe you could describe what we're even talking about in terms of the chapters of your life and, and what that how, how someone listening might go through that process for themselves. Sure. around a particular area of their lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, so one thing to say here is that the book itself is written in chapters, obviously, as all books are. And each chapter of the book closes with some exercises. And my intention there is to offer the reader, you know, each of the chapters of the book is sort of like another just place of awareness. And then the, the exercises in each chapter are designed to kind of like flesh that out. How does that apply to you? And um, you're right, what you're, a lot of the work of the book is inviting people to kind of work on their life story. And this is from, um, you know, there's a whole branch in the field of psychology that's about the power of story, the power of narrative. Um, and that when we tell our stories, that's healing right then and there that's healing um, just the telling of our story so in the book there are a number of invitations for the reader to kind of work on their story and it's through the process of working on sort of who was i and who am i that then we start to really get empowered around okay so now who do i want to be going forward what do i want to break shed transform and what do i want to carry through yeah, and 
and being able to um like i was imagining because i unfortunately i was reading so much that i didn't get a chance to do all of your exercises but <laughs> that being said uh, it was exciting the idea of like imagining okay at this part of the story this is when the the unwitting hero stumbles across his <laughs> you know his first love or you know makes the decision that he will regret for the rest of you know that sort of thing right right um and so, yeah, so there's some quality of that that I think can be really helpful for you to be willing to look at your life that way. Um, what If I'm the hero of this story or the heroine of this story, what did I do in this chapter? What's like the one sentence su summary and how does that chapter live in me unconsciously, you know, that I'm naming right now? Mm -hmm. And then if I'm well, what could happen in the next chapter? Because, you know, that's the beauty of story, right? Is that as long as, you know, there's another book in the series, um, you don't really know what's going to happen. It's it's not a, a set destiny, no matter what you thought in chapters one, two, and three. Mm -hmm. uh, that's right. And I think that when we are, you know, thinking about sort of when we're working on a chapter in our story that maybe is what we would consider sort of a dark night of the soul or a really difficult chapter that maybe has to do with a toxic romantic relationship, you know, so we're writing that story and the risk is that what we take away from that relationship is just a lot of heavy um, cynicism, wound, hurt, a sort of closed off heartedness, right? Because it hurt, because we feel like love is dangerous, we've been hurt. And so I think there's something when we're especially working on one of those chapters, the process of telling the story can open up, even if it's just for a moment, it can open up a little light of awareness about about the and, about, you know, it was awful and, um, and then in the and, within the and, is sort of that post-traumatic growth that's that's always there that we don't get to unless we really, like, stand in the truth of it, allow ourselves to feel what we feel. And through that process, very often there can be this and that's about and that relationship taught me about what it really means to hold on to my worth and what it really means to honor the red flags when I see them, and what it really means to speak my truth even if I'm afraid. You know, but we don't get to those, we don't get to um, those little pieces that are about our own resilience and our own ability to get back up unless we're willing to just sort of tell the story. Mm. You know, tell the story to be like, this is what, this is what happened. Here's what I saw. Here's what I felt. Here's what I did. Here's what I tolerated. And here's what I want going forward. So that's, I think that's why crafting our stories, telling our stories, even the chapters that were hurtful, um, that we survived. When we do that, we are really reclaiming our healing. We're really reclaiming our resilience. Yeah. Um, through that process. And I don't, I don't think we don't get, I don't think there's any other way to get to the resilience, to the courage to um, love again. We don't get to that by just putting the chapter in a box and like burying the box in the bottom of the ocean, you know, or doing this thing where we just say it was, where we just don't talk about it. You know, we, we can't get there unless we kind of go through and story it and start to make some sense of it. Yeah. It's, 
It's funny because I agree with you completely. And still, I know these people in my life who... Like, that's what they do. Like, end of chapter, you know, box goes under the bed or in the closet or burned in the, in the, in the, um, <laughs> you know, the bonfire. And that's it. Like, next, you know, no, no real self reflection. And there's a part of me at times, especially when things get complicated, where I'm like, wow, that must be a much easier way to live on some level. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering if you have any reflections on on that. The, you know, do you ever, as you were writing the book, because what I loved about loving bravely, um, apart from it just being a really well organized book. So you know, when you read this book, you'll see that it's it does a great job, which probably won't surprise you for someone who teaches, um, you know, relationship 101. Um, it walks you through a process that's that will get you somewhere. And with a, a whole lot more self-understanding. So I really appreciated that. And at the same time, so I was reading it and I was like, oh, this is great. Oh, I can relate to so many of these things. And it's true. Like we do, we have to ride the waves of our relationship and there's so much growth and it can be so hard. And <laughs> and then I was like, but is there a magical universe somewhere where people would, someone would pick up a book like this and be like, it's not that hard. Like it's really easy. Or, you know, you just... <laughs> Like, what is she even talking about? You just, (laughs) you just let go of that person and you move on or, you know, whatever it is. So Mm -hmm. what do you think? Does that mythical universe exist? (laughs) I don't know. It kind of sounds lovely. Like I might go visit that place and (laughs) hang out for a while. (laughs) Right. Bring Todd. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Well, that is, I mean, I'm sure you had these moments as well where it's like, right. I think part of what I part of, I mean, what I do, whether it's in my classroom when I'm teaching undergraduate students or my classroom when I'm training couples therapists or in my couples therapy office when I'm working with couples, I mean, my life's work is to make stuff complicated, right? To hold on to 50 shades of gray, to be willing to go to the level of nuance, to kind of turn something eight different ways so we can look at it. So that's my that's my jam. That's what I love to do. But I'm sure that way of living would drive a lot of people really crazy. It would be a really unpleasant way to live the way there. Um, there's just a kind of a simplicity that comes from not, uh, not looking at the nuance of it. I, um, <laughs> well, this brings me and it gives me an idea for a question, Okay. which is, I'm sure you see this all the time. I see this with my clients and people who write in. Um, there's so often um, someone who's very self-reflective, f- for some reason, finds themselves in relationship with someone who's like, no, I don't really want to talk about that. Or why, why are we making things so complicated? Or any, any um, variation of that. And I'm wondering... Because you you are probably not hearing from that person. You're hearing from the growth-oriented, you know, taking things apart person who really wants to affect change. What do you offer someone in that kind of situation around the dialectics of their partner being different than them versus inviting them into the reflection versus mm-hmm. maybe this person isn't right for you? 
Yes, I think that is such a great question because you're right. With the person that I talk to is the growth-oriented person who asked me a question like, "How do I get my husband?" Because usually, it's a, usually to be stereotypic, it is a um, a straight woman who's asking about her male partner. Uh, how do I get him to, you know, be more self-reflective? How do I get him to? And that to me is um, a red flag kind of question. Whenever we're talking about how to get somebody else to do something, we have exited our own business and we put ourselves in somebody else's business, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that when there's a partner who has more interest in introspection and self-awareness paired with somebody who has less interest, there is a way to invite. I think the, the frame needs to be an invitation to collaboration, like an invitation to standing shoulder to shoulder and kind of looking at a dynamic together. I think sometimes the person who has more years of therapy under their belt, who's read more self-help books, there's a way that that knowledge can start to get used as a weapon in a relationship um, in a way that, because I think it's sort of like, it's like what I, you know, I have done this to my husband at times. Well, I'm the couples therapist, therefore, <laughs> you know. <laughs> right. The number of times that I've sat with my wife, Chloe, and been like, you know, well, Dan Siegel says that. <laughs> That's right. I know. That's right. Except for when it comes to Dan Siegel, because when you're saying what Dan Siegel said, you really are saying the right thing. (laughs) He's just, he's fantastic. But yes, I think that it, so those kinds of things can be used as a defense against the vulnerability of I'm hurt, I'm scared, I'm lonely, I'm confused, right? So when we start using our knowledge or our experience or our our successful podcast or our successful, you know, our book. Um, and we can start to use that knowledge defensively because it's maybe easier than saying, I'm just really lonely for you, or I'm really scared about us right now, or I really don't understand your perspective. Can you tell me more about how you're seeing this? Yeah. We had, um, there was a moment maybe a year or so ago that our daughter was kind of needing to talk through a dynamic that happened at school, you know, this one side to this one, something or other. And, you know, just one of those sort of messy dynamic, messy friendship dynamics. And she's kind of unpacking it with me and I'm working on like a diagram and frameworks and we're unpacking it. And Todd walks by and my husband, Todd walks by and he goes, I don't know. I think you should just tell her that snitches end up in ditches. <laughs> I was like, beautiful. That's beautiful because that may very well be, you know, as good an answer as this diagram that I'm, you know, working on crafting here. <laughs> Maybe there's a simple way forward. <laughs> yeah. So in the spirit of being able to hold both things and to see the possibility for connection, even when you're with someone who you suspect may not be as quote unquote growth oriented as you are and yet where there could be this real opportunity to collaborate let's dive into that um you you talk about the dialectical approach the holding holding two opposites or seeming opposites together and being able to to be okay there how how does that process work and and where do you see that Mm-hmm. Well, I think this example we're working on about um, two people who have different approaches to life, sort of like an introspective versus a just kind of take it as it comes approach. That's a great, that's a great, that couple is sort of a dialectic right there. Like how do you hold the both and where sometimes 
reflection and introspection does yield greater wisdom and awareness. And sometimes um, there's a simplicity. I, I love you. I'm here. Let's go forward. I know that there are times when my husband will, you know, I will want to kind of unpack something and look at it multiple ways. And right, he'll just sort of say, you know, Al, I love you and it's going to be okay. And that is the thing that is, it, it, there are times when that feels actually really validating, right? Mm. The sort of simplicity of, um, I love you. I, I love you and we're going to get through it. It's hard and we're going to get through it. And I'm here and we're together. That there's a simplicity that comes um, from that. So the both and is sort of like, how do you hold on to um, a sense of like, uh, we're in this together and, and that's maybe enough for now and a need to kind of unpack and understand. Um, but those, those both ands come up everywhere. I think that's, you know, it's, it ha they happen within us. How can I be both um, a career, you know, dedicated to my career and dedicated to my family? How can I be both strong and vulnerable? How can, those, those sort of, um, the dialectic idea is about how do we hold on to um, just complexity, both things at once. And I think that happens at the level of the self and at the level of the relationship. Mm. And when we start to go into this either or, either I'm right or you're right, that's a, to me, that's a red flag. When, whenever the conversation is going towards trying to figure out which one of us is right and which one of us is wrong, that's a red flag that we've gotten ourselves off track. Yeah. Yeah, so that that would represent um, like a black and white thinking kind of cognitive distortion almost. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, right. And and it can come up in like how do I how can I love you so much and feel so angry at you right now, or um, how can I um, trust you and. Um, handle the fact that I don't feel safe right now. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it comes up all over the place, doesn't it? It really does. It's, um, I'm thinking about when I'm working with a couple where they really, they're coming into therapy and there's a real question about whether or not the relationship will continue. They're, um, how can we do both? How can we have serious doubts and do the work of couples therapy. That's a, that's a hard thing to hold, you know, how to hold on to both the, um, the awareness, this may not continue and be dedicated to doing the work. Um, and the one that you're talking about, I think is so common, right? Being, I think when we feel angry, um, when we feel well, or when somebody's angry at us, right? When my, when my partner is mad at me, how can I remember that somebody can be mad at me and love me? That's sort of a, a um, a challenging knot that sometimes the anger feels you know hard to stay present when somebody else is angry with us or disappointed in us right that goes right back to childhood wounds usually around our experience of our parents anger or disappointment in us mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i think it's really important for parents to find ways of saying i am i am you know i am angry right now i am upset right now and i love you and i'm doing my work to move through this Yes. No, it's my job as a parent to move through this and um, to reconnect, right? So we don't leave our kids in that place of toxic shame that, that lingers, right? That lingers. And then the kid becomes an adult who really becomes fearful of, um, of conflict. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. 
we don't know anyone like that. Yeah, and I'm another dialectic. I, I like how you brought that up, actually, with couples who are on the edge of like uncertainty around their their status. Um, but I think that that is something that more and more, especially in modern times, people are holding this, like, I'm committed to you. And you know what? Like, I could divorce you. Like, I don't have to live with this bullshit, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So... Um, and it's there's a challenge there because that that particular tension can really challenge the safety that you feel in relationship and the safety that's required to do some of that vulnerable work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, how do you how do you help someone who's in that who's deep in that struggle of like I really want this and I don't want to feel like I'm trapped here. I know. I think this is the hardest. I think this is the hardest thing. Um, I think this is really, really hard because, right, we are um, uh, to act as if divorce isn't an option is to live in la-la land, right? That is, mm-hmm. um, even when divorce was, I think, you know, maybe 50 years ago, it was easier to not act as if that was in the realm of the possible because there was so much more shame and stigma around it than there is today. So, um, so what does how that in and there's no getting around the fact that a in order to that real that intimacy really does require a safe container, a container where I'm saying I am committed to showing up for you today, and I'm committed to showing up. For you tomorrow, and I'm and I'm here to do to to do this with you. And um, I like to think about commitment as having like two faces. the The face of commitment that's about I'm here because it's it's hard to leave. I've got a lot of stuff here, and we've got you know joint accounts. Like that is a part of commitment, right? Part of the the um, essence of marriage is creating sort of a guardrail and making it hard for people to leave. That's one part of commitment. Um, but there's the other part of commitment, which is I'm here because I want to be here because I value us because I believe in us. And so that's always um, a, a really important piece of the work with couples who um, who are well for any couple is is really having that value statement that what are that mission statement that what are we about? What do we believe in? What do we value? And that's how. That's how you create that container that makes staying here feel like a playground rather than like a prison, right? That I'm here right. because this is this is where all of me shows up, um, including the part of me that has pride in what it means to show up to to surrender to a process with a person. Like there's a pride that comes from experiencing yourself as somebody who gave their word and stands by their word, and so. I think couples need, individuals and couples need lots of pathways towards towards capturing and embracing that second face of commitment, which is I'm here because I believe in us. I believe in this. I believe in what we're doing. Yeah, there's something that emerged for me in what you just said, which was the reminder of being committed to the process. So within that, I feel like there's a lot of room for a couple to come to agreement that no matter what, we're committed to 
uh, this process together. We're committed to being kind to each other. Um, and, and having that as also something that you hold to, particularly when, you know, if you are in, you know, a couple in jeopardy, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least um, being willing to say, yeah, neither one of us is going to just jump ship. I'm not going to surprise you. Like right. we're going to we're going to be in this together, even if the mm-hmm. in it means ultimately deciding we're not in it together. That's right. That's right. That's um, some one of my teachers along the way would say, you know, you can always end a marriage. You can't always save a marriage. Right? You can always. So so what it means to save a marriage, to work, to heal a marriage or a long term relationship or a relationship that's there's a. um there's a pride and a sacredness um, to committing to that process, and a vul- And I think here again, I think sometimes we use the um, the the fact that we can leave. We can use that as a defense against the vulnerability of really turning towards the relationship. Um, and certainly, um, certainly to to I think what creates a healthy relational environment is a commitment to never using the threat of leaving as a, um, as a reflection. I think when we're, that's why it's so important to manage when we're triggered. Cause when we're triggered, if we're triggered and we keep talking and we keep <laughs> fighting and the volume is going up and the volume is going up, we really put ourselves in jeopardy of saying that thing of like, of putting divorce on the table, of putting breakup on the table, of threatening to leave. And that is all that can be, Um, that is in that moment, a reflection of that triggered volume up kind of behavior that, um, that just doesn't create a healthy relationship climate. Like you're saying, if a marriage ends, it needs to end a relationship ends, it needs to end from a really sober place of thoughtfulness, of consideration, of consciousness. Um, and people need to be aware that, I mean, that's the thing we've learned. This is what the whole field of interpersonal neurobiology has taught us is that, when we're triggered, we're not our, um, and we're nowhere near our best self or our bravest self. That triggered language, so triggered meaning we're kind of not in our, our, not in our mind, right? We're out of our mind. Our blood pressure is up. Our pulse is racing. Our brain, our intellect is down, and so we are at risk of saying stuff that we can't take back. Stuff that really hurts, and so um, part of that mission statement as a couple, I think, is making commitments around what do we do when we get triggered and how do we commit as a couple to taking timeouts for the sake of our relationship because we love our relationship too much and we honor the fragility of the relationship. Uh, we know that, that relationships are breakable. They can, you know, they can be damaged. So therefore we really value that when we're triggered, we just stop talking and we go back. We, we, we do a timeout until we can, speak from a place of love instead of, um, reactivity. But that's a, that's a practice. And that takes, um, that takes commitment to practice, to live that way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. In, in your book, you bring up several things that we've talked about on the show, things like, uh, creating a, a code word that you use with your partner so that you can even avoid using the word triggered, which can sometimes be even more <laughs> triggering, you know? Um, <laughs> So that was one thing and uh, or like focusing on just things in your in your immediate environment to help you get present to, you know, not 
hopefully not being in an actually threatening situation, which is what that fight or flight is is responding to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so you offer lots of great hints in loving bravely around how to how to navigate that kind of agreement with your partner, which I really appreciated. Yeah, it's, it's because, been yeah. a it's been a theme that we, we that we talk about a lot here on the show. What were you going to say? Well, I'm just I was going to say because it's really it's I think it's I'm glad that you're talking about it a lot on the show because I think it's just. Uh, it's so important and it's so difficult to do, right? When when that um, overwhelmed state takes takes over, we can start to tell ourselves, well, it's just my feelings. I'm entitled to talk about my feelings. Um, so there's this whole kind of story that get, gets wrapped around, like when I'm upset, I'm allowed to say whatever I want. And, and so a, a, an important aspect of self-awareness is um, being willing to kind of question that belief. And that there's, of course you are entitled and authorized to talk to your partner uh, about what's on your mind, about what's troubling you, but the how, the how matters. Right. There's a lot circulating in the popular culture right now around uh, radical honesty and telling it like it is. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that can feel really good, particularly if you're angry briefly and then and then you have to live with what with the consequences of how you delivered that radical truth um so i I think you're definitely right that that your ability to get back to the part of your brain that that goes offline when you're triggered your prefrontal cortex to get back to that part of your brain before you express your radical truth so that you can do it lovingly and uh, relationally and creatively and um, compassionately, um, you're going to be way better off. Right. Yep. That's right. That's right. I, I think you're, I think you're wise to connect it to this bigger cultural um, climate that we are in right now. Yeah. There's, I, I, I'm not, I'm not a fan of radical truth. <laughs> I have many, <laughs> when I, when I have a couple in my office and one of them says, you're not going to want to hear this, but I got to say it. I put my hand up and I say, well, let's just, let's pause <laughs> one hand on your heart, one hand on your belly. Let's do some breathing because if that's, if the frame is, you're not going to want to hear this, but I got to say it. Maybe there's, maybe this is a great place to do some mindfulness and some preparation and kind of consider how can, how can it be said in a way that really is the voice of the voice of love, right? Where there's a where said in a way that, you can advocate for yourself um, while also holding on to uh, your partner. Yes, you bring up a couple times this question of what would what would love say or do in this situation? Um, and that's a great place to orient from if you hear yourself saying, I don't want to, I don't want to, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Then go with that. <laughs> go to your journal. Right. Go to your journal. Like work it out. But, you know. Yes. Yeah. So if it, if that's the frame, that's a big red flag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And talk about the importance of the pause here, because I love how. Yeah, you do that in a in a session, I, and I can relate. There are times when I definitely have to be like, all right, you know, stop everything. Um, what's so important about the pause? Hmm. It goes back to um, the the fact that we are, you know, we act as if we're these like highly evolved creatures uh, when we're walking around with these brains that for the vast majority of our existence, right, have, um, and and sometimes in our lives, really do still need to be fight or flight. But um, so we are wired for fight flight so powerfully. Um, 
but we live in a world and and we create these romantic relationships where we really do value um, care, consideration, compassion, closeness, intimacy. And intimacy is um, it's really a tender a tender thing, right? To to really um, if what we say we value is letting ourselves be seen in all of our complexity. If that's what we value in our relationships, then we need to be willing to do what it takes to create the conditions where we can safely show each other to each other and share stories of our hurt and talk about our insecurity. And so if that's what we want. We have to align our behaviors towards that. And that means being willing to, um, to pause and, uh, and kind of consider, okay, so um, having a concern or a complaint or a criticism is, of course, understandable and to be expected in a romantic relationship. Of course, that's going to happen. But how do I say it in a way um, that really invites intimacy, where this moment of difference, this moment of misunderstanding, this moment of disappointment um, can help us better understand who, who we each are individually and what we're about as a couple. And so that really comes from, um, from pausing. And, and uh, you know, Dan Siegel has that really lovely way of talking about kind of the yes space versus the no space. Um, and getting to know what that feels, I think that's where it starts. You know, very often in my office, I'm just helping people kind of get a sense of what does it feel like to be in a yes space. The yes space is curious, collaborative, empathic, uh, and the no space is defensive, reactive, kind of like that gotcha um, energy. And so the first step is kind of figuring out what that feels like in your body to be in a yes space versus a no space. And in order to get to that, we've got to pause and just take that moment of reactivity and breathe and watch it and notice it and kind of start to question what are what are the stories that are getting going in me right now. And very often the stories are um, pretty negative and critical of our partners and, um, and they deserve to be kind of unpacked around. Okay. So I, the story I'm telling myself is that, um, you must not have, you must not care very much about me if that's what you, you know, your behavior says to me, you don't care much about me. Even just that as a kind of pause, you know, saying the story I'm telling myself is you don't care very much about me. That's a kind of pause because then we're inviting our partner to say, okay, I hear that's the story you're telling yourself that you don't feel very cared for right now. I'm sorry that you feel that way. Let me know when you're ready to, for, to hear a little more about what was going on on my side of the street, you know, in my part of the world. And that's kind of how that back and forth opens up. Yeah. Yeah. When you said um, we think of ourselves as these evolved beings, um, I think it's worth pointing out that when you are in fight flight when you are about to say that thing that you know you shouldn't say but um you're actually in like the least evolved part of your brain <laughs> you know that's that's your primitive brain so you're not acting like an evolved being in that moment and maybe that can be a reminder to you like oh i gotta get let me get back to the place where that where i can really leverage evolution here for myself yeah it happens quickly you know i'll be in in session with a couple and 
uh, you know, one partner will raise their eyebrow, you know, and it's, and then their other partner is like, okay, here we go. And I'm like, wait, whoa, what happened? Like it just, it it can turn on a dime because we get to know each other really well. Yes. You have these tells, right? And um, so, and my couple knows each other's tells much more than I know their tells, right? I'm, I'm sort of getting to know the terrain of this relationship that they've been in for, you know, a long time. And so she lifts her eyebrow up and her partner is like, okay, well, here we go. Like, wait, slow down. What's happening? Because that's right. That's that reactive, um, that reactive part of our brains that is so ready to either fight uh, or get the heck out of there. And, And that's a learning to learn that the fight or flight response is our low brain response and that our relationships deserve something a little more careful, a little more uh, nuanced than just fight or flight. That's, yes. that's work. That's work to be like, okay, I'm watching your eyebrow go up. I'm starting to tell myself a story of your dismissing me. You don't believe me, you know, <laughs> just to kind of breathe through that and stay, stay in that space of um, curiosity instead, yeah. of, instead of attack or get the heck out of there. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting to me, I'm just imagining this hypothetical situation with the eyebrow. And I imagine that it's even possible that if the other partner were able to say, I see you, I see your eyebrows being raised um, and to actually name a few other things that they see that, that even that in and of itself could totally shift what's being felt in that moment from what was about to happen to like, Oh, actually we're both here in this space together and you know, we're both being people and, and we're actually safe with each other. And, you know, just the act of mentioning those things yeah. presences both partners, I think. I agree. I agree. Cause then the partner with the eyebrow can say, you know, thank you for letting me know. Okay. Let me just take a couple deep breaths here because I really do. I love us. I believe in us. I want to fight for us. So let me just regulate myself for a moment so that I can really take in what you need to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know about you, Alexandra, but for me, when when my partner like names something that is a sign that I am like kind of going down like some road that's very familiar to me, I have a... a my own little recognition of, oh my God, I am. I'm like, I'm about to do that thing that I always do. And if I, if she catches me just right, like that's enough to let me see myself with a certain degree of, of humor and humility in those mm-hmm. moments. Yes. Isn't that beautiful? Yes. My, my husband will, I remember a time not long ago, he was like, whoa, you just went like zero to 60 in like a millisecond. That was like really intense to watch. And he said it in this kind of half sarcastic, but observing way. But it was, I was able to hear the love in the message and the sort of invitation to slow down in the message. And right, in that moment, I could take myself lightly enough to be like, okay, yep, okay, you're holding up a mirror. I see it. (laughs) Let me try again. Yeah, that's um, that's you know the whole Gottman's five to one ratio of positive that we that we need five positive to 
counteract every one negative. And that when we have that kind of atmosphere in our relationship, our partner can say to us like, whoa, you're like super zero to 60 right now. And we can take it for what it is, which is a bid to be like, let's go, let's be careful here. Let's slow down. Let's be mindful and um, take it with, with that kind of like um, sense of trust that we're both fighting for the same thing right now, which is our relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are two things that I want to make sure that we mention before, um, before we go today. And, um, and actually before we even do that, um, before we started, you mentioned that there's a new series that you're going to be doing online, uh, a, a, like a book club around loving bravely. What, what is that that you're going to be doing? Yeah, we are um, in January, we're going to launch a uh, Loving Bravely book club. It's going to be online. We're going to do it through Facebook. So we've created um, a, a Facebook group. So you go to to sign up, you go to my website, dralexandrasolomon.com slash book club. And there's sign up information, but it is, um, it's going to be free. And we're going to just move through one lesson of the book each month. So there's 20 lessons of the book. So we're going to do just kind of a deep dive on each of the lessons. Um, it'll be a blend of uh, using Facebook Live um, format plus sort of Q&A in the Facebook group, kind of some dialogue back and forth there. And participants will have access to, um, we'll do some homework and some challenges. And uh, I'm excited. It's a, it's a new um, a new venue for me, but a way of, um, I think, of taking this work, which is simple and infinitely complex at the very same time, and, um, and working on it in community, which I think is the best way to do it, frankly. Yeah, to be able to support each other, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so we will and make sure that we have a link to that in the uh, in the show notes for this episode as well, so that whenever you're listening to us, you can find Alexandra Solomon and and jump in wherever they happen to be in the book. That's right. Yeah, there won't be. A, that's right. There's, there's not going to be like if you don't get in in lesson one, you're out. It will be an unfolding process. Great. So um, so the two things. One is on the shorter side and one might be a little less short, but hopefully not too long. Um, and so the first one is I love how many helpful ways you offer in your book to be an invitation, something that we started talking about at the very beginning of this conversation. And I'm wondering uh, if you could talk for a moment about c- constraints questions, because that's something I hadn't, at least a terminology that I hadn't come across before. And I found that to be a really generative approach to how you might flip something around to actually be useful. Um, so can you talk about that concept of, of a constraints question and how you would use that practically? Yes. In fact, I love that you brought it up because just this morning I was thinking about cons- the idea of a constraint question and like just having, um, having a real moment of like, man, that's a brilliant idea. It's just, it's an old school family therapy concept that is like so uh it's simple and i think it packs a really powerful punch so say well let's i mean this is kind of a tricky one but let's say our partner lies to us there's two ways of two ways of bringing it up one way is why did you lie to me um and that question is and then the and then the other way um 
is to ask a constraint question. And the constraint question is, what kept you from being truthful with me? So the difference between why did you lie to me and what kept you from being truthful with me is a, a, a really big difference, right? The why mm -hmm. did you lie to me in, is an invitation to defensiveness. Right. right? It's, an, it's an accusation. Um, it is a, it's an accusation. It invites defensiveness. It kind of um, predetermines the outcome, which is uh, I'm the victim, you're the perpetrator. Um, it makes a good bad split versus um, what kept you from being truthful is a curious invitation towards let's work together to understand what the heck is going on in our, con in our relationship that uh, truth is being constrained. That truth, yeah. that something doesn't feel safe enough or something is unhealed in you. Um, like what's going on? Like let's look at this. It's an invitation to that shoulder to shoulder stance to look together at what the heck is going on. Yeah, so the... So what, what's the trick for looking at a situation and finding the constraint? The constraint being the what's keeping you from mm -hmm. something? Yeah. Well, I think just that language, what's keeping you from, um, is the way to ask it. So you were late. What's keeping you from being on time? Mm -hmm. we, you know, we agreed to 3.30. What's keep, what kept you? What kept you from showing up at 3.30? Right. You're setting unrealistic expectations for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. And it may be. And it may. So, okay, so now we're off to the races. Let's exactly. have a conversation about expectations. How do expectations tie to values? What do we value in this relationship? In what way are you and I different? You grew up in a family where 10 minutes late equaled on time. I grew up in a family where 10 minutes early equaled late. That's so fascinating. Let's yeah. unpack that. What does that mean to us going forward? Right. So now, now we're in it. Like now we're unpacking and looking at it versus you were late. You were bad. You are wrong. You are disrespectful. That's a stance that closes off intimacy. It closes off any kind of curious conversation about how do we define, you know, what, how do we define this? How do we operationalize it? What does it mean to us? Is there a difference between us and the value of this thing? Those are much more interesting conversations. So the idea, I guess, the key to the constraint question is kind of like flip. It's like it involves a flip and an asking about what keeps us from a path that feels more healthy, more whole, more inviting, more collaborative. Right. And as you reach for a constraint question instead, you may bump up against that place in you that wants to be the victim. Because the constraint question, what I notice immediately is it invites you into a conversation where you have shared responsibility for whatever's happening. Totally. Totally. Yep. Well, because, you know, when it comes to um, a lie, one of the really tricky things is relationship. When um, we start to hide, we start to hide things, distort things when we don't trust, um, when we don't feel safe. So the lie can feel like the blatant, obvious place to put the blame or the badness, but there's very oftentimes really important things to look at about um, how do we respond when, when, um, when we're in the face of difference. Sometimes, sometimes I may lie because it's, I'm really scared to be, to be direct with you, to tell you what's really going on. 
Right, right. We had um, Ellen Bader and Peter Pearson on the show talking mm. about their book, Tell Me No Lies, which and I love how they illustrate that, that there is a co-created dynamic there of how how honesty is fostered and truth telling in, in a relationship. Yep. It's a lot of breathing. We have to really keep breathing when our partners share a truth that challenges us, that we disagree with, that we don't like. Okay, so keep breathing, keep breathing, because if what you're saying is that you value transparency and honesty, then you got to keep breathing, even when your partner is sharing something that you don't, that you're struggling with. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? <laughs> and and maybe like that would be a great place for us to end because I'm, you know, you spend the first um, half, I think, of the of the lessons in the book are all about the work that we do within ourselves. And um, it can be easy to, you know, one place where I've focused a lot on the show has been in the skills of being relational because the personal growth, like we're a very personal growth oriented world. Um, and so people neglect like the growth that's around how you actually connect after you're growing personally. Mm-hmm. Um, but what did you what's how do, how can i phrase this what's so crucial from your perspective about the way that we approach our own growth and how we bring that to our relationship mhm yeah one of the things that i i try to say, i say over and over again in my in the undergraduate course and it's sort of pervades my work which is the self awareness self growth work isn't one and done. It's not like a thing we do for a month or a year or two years. Uh, it's something that we, it's a, it's a paradigm shift. It's a commitment to always seeing, to, to really taking ourselves as these like unfolding projects and that we're never done and we're never perfect. And thank goodness. Um, and that it's this back and forth between my own intimacy with myself and how that opens me to intimacy with you and then how intimacy with you turns me back towards intimacy with myself. So it's really just, um, I think the most important thing is holding on to that both those things are true at the same time that I, I'm working on me while we're working on us and working on us helps me work on me. That that's sort of this ongoing, um, back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. And I I love that. It's true. It is an ongoing process. And you offer some great ways in loving bravely to to look at your own growth and how it how it um, the bearing that it has on what you bring to relationships. So whether it's like your beliefs about soulmates or your beliefs about anger and confrontation or what to expect in relationship, all those things are so important because if you're not illuminating them, they're going to drive you um, unconsciously or subconsciously. That's right. That's right. Even that, right, even the whole, um, I could see a couple having a fight where it's about, I thought you were my soulmate. I, what is a soulmate? Okay, great. So let's use, like, you know, rather than fighting about whether or not each other, you are each other's soulmates, back up and have a conversation about how did you come to believe what you believe about soulmates and what ways it a reflection of your family system, your cultural location, like all of these little points of difference are really neat opportunities for expanding our own awareness, expanding our compassion and empathy, 
for our partner and how they're different from us and how they view the world differently from us rather than them being threats. Do we have time for one more question? Sure, go for it. Okay. Um, This came up for me actually at the very beginning of our conversation and what you just said reminded me of it. And that is you've talked about the power of creating our narrative and really getting to know ourselves well and and in what you were just saying, unpacking that with our partners. And I'm wondering from your perspective, what's the balance between what we share with our partners about that narrative, like sharing with them about our, our history and what we're discovering um, and and maybe where we don't necessarily have to share. And on the flip side, I've actually gotten a lot of questions from people and perhaps you run into this in your therapy as well um, when your sessions with clients around, you know, someone finding something out and then kind of having trouble forgetting it or like, how do I live with knowing that this was my partner's experience? And that could be something really bad that happened or it could even be like the knowledge that their partner had this amazing lover and maybe they're not that. And How do you help a a couple navigate those kinds of questions? Yeah, boy, that's a big one. Um, The first thing I'm thinking is about, you know, early in a relationship, um, the idea that we really do need to earn, um, earn each other's stories. Um, And I think that that early in a relationship, there can be either a fear of um, being seen of somebody knowing, like, what if you, if you knew the skeletons in my closet, you would head for the hills. Um, or there can be an opposite of like, okay, so you need to know all this stuff about me so that you can decide whether you can handle me or not handle me. Or I want to know right now if you are up for this because I don't want to get invested and then have you flee. So that's where that, um, the, the degree to which we can hold onto with love and compassion, our own complexity that will help us um, navigate what is a really personal boundary around how and when we share. But the thing that we know for sure is that when, when I show myself to you and you respond with empathy instead of judgment, that right there creates a loop that builds trust. And so the degree to which you do that for me is the degree to which I will feel safe enough to share more about me and that builds trust. So the sharing and the trust building and the empathy do go hand in hand and they grow over time. Um, and they're a process and time is a really essential variable. Um, and that's, that's what makes, I think, um, getting into a relationship. One of the things that makes getting into a relationship so challenging is that it, that takes a while to build. It takes patience, um, to, to kind of share something and then read the feedback yeah. um, about how your partner, you know, how that person's responding to you. Yeah. And on the flip side, if you're responding with, uh, you know, I don't know what to do about this or having discovered this, um, you know, you waited three years to tell me whatever it is. Um, what I'm hearing and what you just said is that that might be a reflection of, your own judgment or fear and and hopefully that's something that you are then able to bring to the conversation right so yeah so if so and when when the partner like when our partner if a partner shares something 
uh, in year three of a relationship. Usually it's when I see this happen with my couples, it tends to be something about, you know, when I was a kid, I was abused or my, what, you know, what, some, some piece of a story or my last relationship I cheated or um, when that comes forward, hopefully it's coming forward in a way of like, listen, here's, here's something difficult and here's what I've done to understand it, to make sense of it, to heal, to grow. Here's what I commit to going forward. So that it, it's not just this like kind of unfinished plop you know, mm. here's this thing which is plopped down in the space where there is, I think, some responsibility on the person who's doing the sharing to have done their own work around it, to have forgiven themselves, to have um, healed from the if it's, a, if it's a trauma, to have done some work around healing the trauma, to understand sort of um, the bigger picture of what the impact was, what the recovery looks like, how they practice their healing today. Um, so I think that that's that that helps it. Um, that helps the integration of new knowledge uh, be a little easier for the recipient. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. Um, well, it now I'm realizing it wasn't really fair of me to drop such a big question on you at the end. But I appreciate that you were willing to to dive right in with me. <laughs> um, and that being said, let this be hopefully an invitation for you to come back at some future date where we can unpack that even more. Um, in the meantime, uh, Alexandra Solomon, thank you so much for being here with us today. Love your, clearly you're so wise and you have a lot of practical wisdom from also practicing with clients as well. And your book, Loving Bravely, 20 Lessons of Self-Discovery to Help You Get the Love You Want, I think is, is just so valuable and, and it's, it's an easy read and something that will definitely help you come to understand yourself in relationship way more than perhaps you already do. So, uh, if again, if you want to download the transcript and guide for this episode, you can do that at neilsatin.com slash bravely, as in loving bravely. Um, and uh, you can also text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions and I'll send you everything that you need, along with links to find Alexandra Solomon, um, her book, and uh, and to get involved in uh, her, her uh, book group and whatever else she has going on. Um, clearly lots of value there. So thank you so much again, Alexandra, for being with us here today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.